So our text this morning is Colossians chapter 3, verses 18 through chapter 4, verse 1. If you're able, please stand for the reading of God's word. We're starting in Colossians 3.18. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily is for the Lord and not for men. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward, you are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated, and we'll pray together. Father, I thank you for your word, your holy, eternal word. Father, I pray that you would be with me this morning, that I would accurately handle the word of truth. Father, thank you for Jesus. Stir our affections for him this morning. Father, I pray that our duty will be our delight. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we are now in our 17th week of our study of Colossians, and we'll be wrapping up the book next week. It's been a particularly rich time in the Word together. As is Paul's pattern, he starts the book of Colossians with the gospel before telling us how to live the Christian life. As we saw from the Christ hymn that we just recited together from chapter 1, Paul first grounds the Colossians in the person and work of Christ. He then addresses the particular heresy that was being propagated at Colossae and thus very specific commands for the Christian walk. If you've been at Remedy for any time, you will have heard it said, preach the gospel to yourself every day. That's just said in the first part of the book. Without understanding the person and work of Christ, Without understanding the transforming power of the gospel, our attempts to live the Christian life will be in the power of the flesh, and we will utterly fail. So we will remind ourselves of the gospel as we look at the commands of the apostle today. The other place that we will go for context is the first two chapters of Genesis before the fall. To understand God's purposes in human relationships, we need to understand how they were designed to be. So we are rejoicing that God is reconciling us to himself and that our relationships are being restored with God and with each other. In the nine verses of our text, Paul addresses how to live the Christian life in three key human relationships, in marriage, in parenting, and at work. He speaks to wives and husbands, children and fathers, and bondservants and masters. In all three relationships, he commands submission and responsibility. The first relationship Paul addresses is marriage. Verses 18 and 19. 
Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Paul begins with the most intimate of human relationships and the building block of human society. So why did God create marriage anyway? What were his purposes? There are at least five. The first one is probably the most obvious. God told Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply. So it's for procreation, to raise up the next generation. Second is sexual intimacy. Genesis 6.24 says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. In Matthew 19.6, Jesus quotes this verse, then adds, So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. The unity of the flesh is not trivial. It's a profound physical, spiritual, and emotional joining together, which is why sex outside of marriage goes against what God has created. The third purpose for marriage is companionship. Genesis 2.8 reads, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. The fourth reason for marriage is sanctification. Not just in the sense that it helps guard against sexual immorality, but God uses us living with an imperfect spouse to further our sanctification. In the book Sacred Marriage, Gary Thomas asks the question, What if God designed marriage to make us holy more than to make us happy? He goes on to say, Marriage forces me to face myself honestly and consider my character flaws, selfishness, and anti-Christian attitudes, encouraging me to grow in godliness. Finally, God created marriage as an illustration of Christ in the church. Ephesians 5, 31 and 32 says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother... And hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So what's this telling us? It's saying that marriage is sacred. When we marry, we enter into a covenant that follows the pattern of the covenant Christ made with the church. So that means, for example, that just as Christ would never cast away the church, a man should never cast away his wife. With that very quick overview for God's purpose in marriage, let's look at the specific commands. Paul begins by addressing wives. Verse 18 says, Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. So before we talk about what this text is saying, I'd like to list five things that this verse is not saying. Number one, it is not saying, Husbands, make your wives submissive. This verse is talking to wives. That's important. It's not talking to husbands here. It says, wives, submit to yourselves, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Number two, it is not saying that women are inferior to men. It is saying wives and husbands have different roles. Submission does not mean inferiority. We'll talk more about that. Number three, who are wives to submit to? Their husbands. Number four, it does not an example. It does not use the word obey at all. That word is used two verses down for parents and for children and parents. The word used is submission, and we'll circle back to that. Number five, 
it is not without context. So, said positively, this command was given in context of Colossians 1.1 through 3.17. The Christian life is lived out in the light of the gospel. His great, motive, his great love is what motivates us to, to live for him. The Holy Spirit is working on the ins, from the inside, changing us. And we live in a community of believers who are walking through life together. This command was not given in a vacuum. So let's talk about what the text is saying. It is saying, Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Ephesians 5.22 adds two words. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. So this isn't submission to some impersonal authority, but to the man with whom you have an intimate personal relationship. Susan has often told me that it's easy for her to submit to me when I am loving her. It also says, as unto the Lord. The ESV Study Bible points out that seven times in these nine verses, Paul roots his instructions in the Lord or an equivalent term. There's a difference among commentators as to the meaning of this term in the Lord. Some say it means we evaluate everything in the light of Christ and his teaching. So, if your husband says to do something which is clearly sin, you would obey God rather than man. Other commentators explain that the Greek form of this word expresses a duty. So, what Paul is saying is that it's fitting for wives to submit to their husbands as that is how God designed the family to operate. The parallel passage in Ephesians 5 supports the second interpretation as it goes on to explain the reason for the submission is because the husband is the head of the wife even as Christ is the head of the church. But I think there's still some validity in the first point. We're subject to the government, for example, unless the government tells us to go against the clear commands of God. The Greek word for submission is hupotasso. It means to arrange under, to subordinate. It can also mean to submit oneself, to voluntarily put oneself under. The word is used in other places in Scripture. We read in the Gospel of Luke that Jesus went to the temple in Jerusalem at age 12. His parents started on the journey home, each thinking he was with the other. How do you just lose the Son of God, right? I always wondered how that worked until I became a parent... And Susan and I drove separately to church. You guessed it. I thought one of our children was with her, and she thought he was with me. Mary and Joseph finally found Jesus in the temple, sitting among the teachers. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. Jesus was arguably aware of his divinity here. Luke 2.51 says, And he went down with them, talking about his parents, and came to Nazareth and was hupotasso, submissive to them. The same Greek word. The Son of God was voluntarily submissive to his earthly parents. Submission is not the same as inferiority. I'd like to very briefly address a different topic, but one that overlaps the concepts of the roles of men and women in the families. The topic is the debate even among evangelicals between complementarianism and egalitarianism. 
Complementarians say that men and women are equal in personhood. There's no difference in worth, but men and women have complementary differences. Men and women complement each other in separate roles. Complementarians, for example, would say the role of elders should be reserved for men. Egalitarians state that men and women are equal and there's no difference in roles between the genders. Christian egalitarians do not believe that the role of elders, which is just another word for pastors, should be reserved for men. It's hard to be too specific when talking about the beliefs of either complementarians or egalitarians because there's a wide egalitarians in what I believe to be the biblical response. First, some egalitarians say that differences in roles between men and women is the result of the fall. Differences were introduced only after there was sin in the world. Wayne Grudem lists eight indications, however, of differences in roles between Adam and Eve before the fall. Number one, Adam was created first, then Eve. The creation of Adam first is consistent with the Old Testament pattern of primogenitor, the idea that the firstborn in any generation in a human family has leadership in that family for the gener- that generation. Also in 1 Timothy 2.13, Paul uses the fact that Adam was formed first, then Eve, as a reason for restricting some distinct governing and teaching roles to men. Number two, Eve was created as a helper for Adam. Genesis 2.18, which we just read a minute ago, says... Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. These are different roles. Pardon me. Number three, Adam named Eve. The fact that Adam gave names to all the animals indicated Adam's authority over the animal kingdom. Therefore, when Adam named Eve by saying, She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man, in Genesis 2.23, it indicated a leadership role. Number four, God named the human race man, not woman. Genesis 5, 2 says, Male and female he created them and blessed them and named them man when they were created. Number five, God spoke to Adam first after the fall. Even though Eve sinned first, God came first to Adam and called him to account for his actions. Number six, Adam, not Eve, represented the human race. Even though Eve sinned first, we are counted sinful because of Adam's sin, not because of Eve's sin. 1 Corinthians 15.22 says, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Number seven, The curse brought a distortion of previous roles, not the introduction of new roles. In the punishments, God gave Adam and Eve, um, he, he didn't introduce new roles or functions, but simply introduced pain and distortion into the functions they previously had. Thus, Adam would still have primary responsibility for tilling the ground and raising crops but the ground would bring forth thorns and thistles, and in the sweat of his brow would he eat bread. Number eight, redemption in Christ reaffirms the, the Christian order. If it were a sinful pattern for wives to be subject to their husband's authority, Peter and Paul would not have commanded it to be maintained in Christian marriages. The redemption of Christ is aimed at 
the removing of the results of sin and the fall in every way. So the egalitarian argument that differences in roles between men and women is a result of the fall is not supported biblically. The second main argument of some egalitarians is that Peter and Paul's statements about men and women's roles were just reflecting the culture of the day. Scripture was just stating the culture of the time. This is particularly dangerous. What's to prevent me from dismissing Scripture that is convicting to me by saying that it just reflects the culture of the time? Scripture, in fact, is distinctly different from the pagan culture of the first century. If Paul had been following the culture of his day, he would have used the word obey when talking to wives instead of submit. And he would not have charged husbands to love their wives. Roman law said, if you catch your wife in an act of infidelity, you can kill her without a trial. There's nothing. If, if it's the man, there's nothing. This argument, in fact, seems to be doing exactly what it ac- accuses Paul of doing. It is interpreting scripture by our Western culture of the 21st century instead of looking at our culture through the lens of scripture. Third, some egalitarians emphasize passages like Galatians 3.28, which say we are all one in Christ Jesus, to argue against differences in roles. But this verse just affirms our unity and does not say we all have the same function. They also point to specific passages about women in leadership, like Deborah the judge, but none of these address whether women can have governing or teaching authority over the whole church. In contrast, passages like 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 clearly present qualifications for elders, including the husband of one wife. To me, the egalitarian arguments are not supported scripturally. Understand, however, that these differences between egalitarians and complementarians are not salvific. They don't have anything to do with salvation. There are wonderful brothers and sisters in Christ who hold to the egalitarian view. So back to our text, the first part of Paul's commands regarding marriage is wives submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. The second part is verse 19. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Both submission and responsibility are hard for us as humans because we are a fallen race. As a result of the fall, we're all alienated from God, but also we're alienated from each other. Adam failed Eve instead of protecting her. So men, we cannot be past it happened. In Genesis chapter 1, God created the world and ordered it. In Genesis chapter 2, we're given more details about God's order. God forms the first man, Adam. God then made Eve from one of Adam's ribs. Genesis 2.22 says, And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. In Genesis chapter 3, we learn of our enemy, the serpent. Later, we understand that this is Satan. He takes the order of creation and inverts it. He stands God's creation on its head. The serpent was a creature over which Adam and Eve should have exercised dominion. Yet he questions God's motives, the creator of the universe. Then he denies God's word. Genesis 3-4 says, 
But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. Also notice that he only speaks to Eve despite the fact that Adam was right there. Genesis 3.6 says, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. We're given additional information in the New Testament when we are told that Eve was deceived. 2 Corinthians 11.3 But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Eve was deceived, and Adam failed in his responsibility to protect her. He was passive. Christ, the second Adam, was not passive. Notice how Christ treats his bride, the church. Ephesians 5.25 Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Husbands, Christ is our perfect example of how to love our wives. Some of us did not grow up with very good role models. None of us had it perfectly modeled for us by our earthly fathers, but Christ is the perfect role model for all of us. Husbands, we are called to be the spiritual leaders in our homes. Spiritual leadership, whether in the church as elders or in the home as husbands, starts with submission of our wants and needs to the sanctification of others. Spiritual leadership is servant leadership. That means putting your wife's needs ahead of your own. It means loving her with sacrificial love and humility as Christ did. Philippians 2, 5 through 8 says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Christ is our role model. Also notice that his goal is our goal. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Why? That he might sanctify her. In our own small way, we as husbands seek to help our family to be more like Jesus. We want to encourage our wife and children to grow in the Lord. So just as the goal of Christ is the sanctification of the church, so the goal of the husband is sanctification of his bride by selfless love, by nourishing her with the word of God and cherishing her as a person. Ephesians 5, 25 to 29, we started reading this earlier. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Part of nourishing and cherishing your wife means that you honor her. Think for a moment of a person you admire perhaps a sports figure or statesman or musician or a great artist. 
If that person that you most admired came into your home for a visit, how would you treat them? How would you show them respect and deference? 1 Peter 3.7 says, Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers will not be hindered. Gary Thomas in Sacred Marriage writes, Peter is directly connecting our attitude toward and treatment of our wives with the fundamental Christian discipline of prayer. In other words, men, when we get married, a condition was placed on our prayer lives, and that condition is tied directly to how we view and treat our wives. I am married to God's daughter. God feels about my wife, his daughter, in an even holier and more passionate way than I feel about my own daughters. Suddenly, my marriage is no longer about just me and one other person. It is very much a relationship with a passionately interested third party. So men, ask yourselves the question, do I honor my wife? And if your prayer life has been a problem area for you, this is the first area to look. There are two parts of the command to husbands in verse 19 of our text. This is the other side of the same coin. If you're, you will not be harsh with your wife if you are loving them. When we think of harsh, usually the first thing we think of are harsh words. We say things that are ill-tempered and provoking. Many people who are polite in public are rude and bitter at home because they're not afraid to be so there. But being harsh is more than that. If I can share wisdom from my years of being a husband, it is mostly with examples of what not to do. For a number of years in our marriage, I kept a scorecard. You know how it is. Uh, This is the third time this week I've taken out the trash, or whatever it was. I wasn't consciously aware of it, but it was there in my head. My underlying belief was that marriage was a 50-50 proposition, quite different than how Christ loves the church and gave himself up for her. I mean, imagine if Christ had said, well, this is a 50-50 proposition. So if, in my view, that hideous scorecard showed that I was ahead, I resented my wife. I don't know that I was even aware of what I was doing, but I remember her saying, I'm not the enemy, because that was how I was treating her. Husbands, if you find yourselves thinking this way, put it to death. Christ is our example. He is our role model. One day we will give an account of how we treated our wife, Christ's daughter. So let me balance this with a positive application. Husbands, I want to give you a practical way that you and your wife can be more like Jesus. In addition to loving and cherishing them, nourish them by praying together. Susan and I have found that praying together is a great way to grow our marriage. We're setting our minds on things above. We're seeking his face in the midst of our trials. And we're both growing in sanctification. Husbands, try it this week and see for yourselves. In verses 20 and 21, uh, Paul tells us how to live the Christian life in parenting. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. How do we live out the Christian life in parenting? 
Well, a lot has been written about parenting, and some of it is good. Some of it is not so good. A lot of what I have read about parenting is all about behavior modification. And there is a place for that. But parents, we must view the gospel, not behavior modification, as the central focus of parenting. Ted Tripp says in Shepherding a Child's Heart, you need to direct not simply the behavior of your children, but the attitudes of their hearts. Your children need to understand not just what the external what they did wrong, but the internal why they did it. You must help them see that God works from the inside out. Therefore, your parenting goal cannot simply be well-behaved children. Your children must also understand why they sin. Living out the Christian life in parenting means passing on the gospel to our children. It's leaving a spiritual legacy for our kids where scripture is taught and faith is caught. Ultimately, our children may follow the world, but not because Christian living wasn't modeled for them. The first command is to children. So kids, listen up. The pleases the Lord. Did you know that? When you obey your parents, it pleases the Lord Jesus. Many of you are Christians and want to please God. Do you know that you can do that? By obeying your parents in everything. Even when you don't want to, you obey willingly. Like cleaning up your things or being nice to your brothers and sisters. Sometimes obeying your parents can be really hard. If you're a Christian, God lives inside of you. Ask him to help you. Just say, Lord Jesus, please help me obey my parents right now. Sometimes obeying your parents is really hard. But your parents love you. And the Lord Jesus loves you even more. He wants the best for you. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. The next command is to parents in general, but fathers in particular. Verse 21, fathers do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Scripture views children as a blessing from the Lord. Not an irritation, although they can be irritating. Not an inconvenience, although parenting requires self-sacrifice. They are entrusted to us to train them up. We're to pass on our faith to the next generation. Notice that verse 21 is addressed to fathers. In our culture, where it's not uncommon for men to go outside the home for work, the wife may spend more hours with the children unless she also works outside the home. But even so, men... Know that scripture still holds the father, the family shepherd, as the one with overall primary responsibility for proper training up of his children. Fadi Bakum in the book Family Shepherds, Calling and Equipping Men to Lead Their Homes, writes, From Genesis to Revelation, we see a clear picture of the role of family in redemptive history and the role of the father in the family. This is no small matter. The Bible leaves no room for fatherhood that doesn't take seriously the responsibility of raising children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Whether it's found in the law, the prophets, the gospels, or the epistles, our calling is clear. We must shepherd our families. Ephesians is the sister book to Colossians. They talk about a lot of the same things. So, Vadi Bakum is alluding to the parallel text to verse 21, which is in Ephesians 4, 6. 
Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Fathers, we provoke our children to anger when we bring them up or fail to bring them up first in the discipline of the Lord or second in the instruction of the Lord. When children are not disciplined or they're disciplined inconsistently, they're not given boundaries. They need these boundaries even if they don't want them. Without boundaries, they feel insecure, unloved, left on their own. Fathers, give your children consistent, loving, biblical discipline. Second, bring them up in the instruction of the Lord. Fadi Bakum says, We must know the difference between condemning our family with the law and shepherding them with the gospel. We must know the difference between what the gospel requires and what the gospel produces. In other words, the gospel requires repentance and faith. The gospel produces obedience. If all I do is tell my children to obey without giving them the gospel, I am asking them for what the gospel requires without the power of Christ in their lives. I'm telling them they can satisfy God's righteousness on their own, which is impossible. I will be exasperating my children. Let's talk about four practical ways to pass on your faith to the next generation. First, model Christian living with your child. Children can sense insincerity. If you only act like a Christian on Sundays, they'll pick up on that very quickly. Know that you will fail to model the Christian life perfectly. So not if, but when you fail, repent. Let your children know you messed up and use it as an opportunity to point them to Christ because their model will ultimately need to be the one who lived a perfect life. The second way to pass on your faith to the next generation is to share the gospel with your children. Not just once, over and over again. This is not a once and done. The third way to pass on your faith to the next generation is to pray for your children. So, husbands... You're going to be praying with your wives anyway, right? So pray with your wives for your children on their, on, on their behalf. Fourth, read the Bible with your children. If they're very young, you might want to use a children's Bible. Figure out what works for you. Maybe at a meal together or at bedtime, share what you're learning from God's word in a level, in a way that's appropriate for your ch- children. Before we leave the topic of parenting, I'd like to say something to single mothers. If for whatever reason you find yourself in that circumstance, know that the local church is here for you. Ask the men of the church to be involved in your kid's life, to model Christian manhood for them, to help you out. Just ask. The third human relationship Paul addresses is living out the Christian life in work relationships. Verses 322 to 4.1 says, Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. 
Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. After God created Adam, but before he created Eve, Genesis 2.15 tells us, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Before the fall, Adam had a job to do. Work is not the result of the fall. Toil is part of the curse. The curse of Genesis 3 made work menial, tedious, and frustrating. It's hard for us to manage work without toil. But imagine doing work for which you are completely wired to do and gives you a a great sense of accomplishment. And your boss is incredible. In fact, he's perfect because he's God himself. Randy Alcorn in his book, Heaven, writes, Because work began before sin and the curse, and because God who is without sin is a worker, we should assume human beings will work on the new earth. We'll have the satisfying and enriching work that we can't wait to get back to, work that will never be a drudgery. In the work relationship, Paul first addresses the bondservant or the worker. That really includes all of us. We all work for someone other than ourselves. That may be for a boss in the workplace. It may be serving the family at home. Even if we have our own business, we're working for the customer. Paul's admonition was to bond servants or slaves who were not given wages. So imagine how much more we should seek to glorify Christ in our work if we're serving our families or working for others who compensate us for our labor. How do we glorify Christ in our work? Paul tells us five ways. Number one, work obediently. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. Do what your boss says. Even if every job description says other duties as assigned. So, obey. Number two, work sincerely. Verse 22 continues, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with, and you're not playing the games of one-upmanship with your co-workers. You give an honest day's work. Your work reflects excellence. Number three, work is unto the Lord. Verse 23, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Don't be lazy. Work hard. Provide for your family. For some of us, though, and myself included, that means knowing when to stop working. We work beyond what is required to the detriment of our family, putting careers ahead of our spouse and children. That is not working as unto the Lord. That's not glorifying to him. When you're working, work hard but don't neglect your family. Number four, work with eternity in mind. Verse 24, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward, you are serving the Lord Christ. So even though we, unlike bondservants, receive compensation for our employment, it is insignificant compared with our inheritance in Christ. And we don't work for that. He lavishes that on us because we are his children. Number five, you reap what you sow. So ignore numbers one through four at your peril. Verse 25, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done and there is no partiality. If you disobey your boss, you steal time or things from your employer and you don't work hard and you don't work as unto the Lord, you will reap what you sow. 
God judges without partiality. So glorify God in your work. The final command is to masters. If you have someone who works for you or that you supervise, this would apply to you. Chapter 4, verse 1. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. We face pressures in the workplace, but it's under pressure where our true character is revealed. And people are watching to see how we live out our faith. Do you intimidate or threaten your workers? Or do you recognize that by serving your employees, you are serving Christ? Everyone is going to give an account. Work in such a way that you bring glory to God. Show evidence that God is transforming you by the way you treat your employees. So today we've talked about three key human relationships. Sometimes those relationships are really hard because we are so, well, human and fallen. But we're not given these commands in a vacuum. We were made in the image of God. Yet, through our willful rebellion, we sinned against him and turned from being his children to being his enemies. But God, two wonderful words. But God sent his son who became our perfect sacrifice on the cross. Christ paid for all the sins of those who come to him in repentance and faith. He sanctifies us by his spirit and has given us each other, the local body of Christ. This is the context of the commands we looked at today. Paul doesn't just give us law. He gives us the glorious eternal gospel of Christ. And for those of us who are in Christ, God has started a good work in us and will bring it to completion in the day of Jesus Christ. So let's pray together. Father, human relationships are really hard. We pray that you manifest your great love and power in our lives. Father, we pray that um, we will be able to live with others and that those relationships will bring us joy. Help us to do so in the power of your spirit. Help us to honor you by the way we live. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.